Good morning, Peachtree. I want to begin this morning's message by asking you to picture yourself as a college student and you've signed up to be a part of a social experiment. You show up in the psychology building and you enter into a regular classroom and they say that what you're testing is you're testing the ability of a group of people to perform effectively as a team. So what they do is they give you a ball and they tell you that the object of your team with the other students that are with you is to keep throwing the ball. You can't hold on to the ball, but keep throwing the ball one to another and to keep doing so and to make sure that the ball doesn't hit the ground and you keep the ball in the air as long as possible. And they're measuring how some teams can do this really, really well. And so the game begins and they start the clock and they begin throwing the ball in the air and you're ready to participate. What you don't realize is that the game is rigged, that everybody's in on it except for you and everybody knows that they're never going to pass the ball to you. That the object is not actually testing team effectiveness. With this little game of the ball, they're actually testing someone's response to being excluded, to being isolated, to being uh, not a part of the group. And so they keep playing the game. And at first you're leaning in, you're trying to participate. And then after a while, you start to give up. You lean back instead of leaning in. And you literally want to take that ball and you want to go home. What was even more fascinating is once the experiment was over, is that they discovered what the participants felt, not just frustration, not just being upset, not just angry or even sad. What they discovered, because they never received the ball, was that they reported higher levels of hopelessness, meaninglessness, and purposelessness, all because of a silly game. You know, the Bible tells us that it's not good to be alone. And we know this is true from not only personal experience, but we know it's true from what God's word tells us, that we were meant for community, we were meant for one another, and yet we're living in this time where we can't be together in ways that we're so used to being together. Now, what's interesting to me is that we had an epidemic before this pandemic, we had an epidemic of loneliness when we could all be together. And so if we think that the minute that stores open and that our churches open and all the things are able to go back to as much as normal as possible, if we think all of a sudden we're not going to be lonely anymore just because life goes back to quote unquote normal, I think we're missing the point. And the point is, is that loneliness is deeper than just being with another person. That there's something about our sense of hope. There's something deep within us that knows that the antidote to loneliness is so much more. We're in the midst of a series of messages where we're talking about life at home. Last week, we talked about a message of overflow at home. We talked about Psalm 23 and how we get to lie down in green pastures and walk through the valley of the shadow, but that our true destination is the house of the Lord, where all is reconciled and we get to be together in God's fellowship. And I challenge you to make that your prayer, Psalm 23, day in to day out, first thing in the morning, later in the evening. And today we're going to talk about not a prayer, but we're going to talk about a promise. 
We're going to talk about how the antidote to loneliness is not what you might think. It's worshiping, even in your own home. To do that, I want to share with you the story of a guy who is homeless. His name is Jacob. Trickery is turned into treachery. And he's thrown his life away by trying to steal a birthright from his brother. His brother becomes so angry that he wants to murder him and he has to flee and he's a life on his own. Doesn't exactly know where he's going. Doesn't know what it'll like when he actually gets there. And so the Bible in Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 10, says this. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. And when he came to a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. And that night he had a dream in which there was a staircase resting on the earth with the top of it reaching all the way up to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it all stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. You and your descendants, I will give the land on which you are lying. And your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And they shall spread abroad to the west and the east and to the north and to the south. And that all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. And so when Jacob awoke, he said, surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. And he was afraid. And he said, how incredible is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And so early that morning, he took the stone that he had placed under his head and he put it on top of a pillar and he poured oil over it. And he called the place Bethel, though it had once been known as the area of Luz. Jacob's fleeing for his life. He doesn't know exactly what his destination entails and he has nothing over his head. And he's completely alone. And yet somehow, in the midst of that solitude, he discovers what his true home will really be like. How does he do it? He does it with an old promise. He does it with a new perspective. And he does it with a renewed practice. First, let's talk about the old promise. You can almost imagine Jacob, the younger brother growing up and Esau every time at dinner, their father Isaac would say, have I told you about the time that God promised to your grandfather Abraham that your descendants will be like the stars in the sky? And they're like, yes, dad, you told us the story. And he's like, have I told you about the time that God forged a covenant with them and there was this fire and by the fire, God's presence walked in the midst of it, that God would do this. And they're like, yes, dad, you told us that one too. Kept telling the story over and over again. They grew up hearing the promise and maybe for Jacob, those promises were just words. 
maybe for someone a long time ago, but what relevance would that have to me? And so Jacob's whole life, his whole orientation is trying to get it for himself, to acquire it, to grab it. And yet all of that grabbing took him somewhere he really didn't want to go. And so Jacob discovers the old, old promise that God has given to him, and he discovers it in a personal way. That God meets him personally and says to him, I am with you, I will watch over you. And then I love the part where he says, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Lewis Smead says, everything in history hinges on a promise made and a promise kept. And our God is the promise-keeping, promise-making God. In Rockford, Illinois, it's considered to be the city that is the most underwater city in the United States. And that's not because it's located next to a body of water. What that means is is that 32% of the homes, the mortgages on that home is greater, the debt on the home is greater than the actual value of the home. It's a city that's about 90 miles north of Chicago, a part of the great Rust Belt and manufacturing era of American history where more and more people have left and the city is more and more abandoned. As in many of these cities, there's a high homeless population and there's even a particularly large homeless veterans population, even for a city of 150,000 people. The mayor went to a seminar once not expecting a whole lot from a governor's seminar. And as he went to this seminar, what he found was that he was convicted to the core and he decided to take a pledge to make a promise. And you might be thinking that a politician's promise might not mean a whole lot, but in this case, it actually did. They said that they were going to do something entirely different about veterans' homelessness. And the whole shift in their approach and strategy and thinking was going to be what is called housing first. In other words, in most housing programs, they use housing as an incentive in order to get you to do other things that you might not want to do, whether it's to get off drugs or to be clean from alcohol or other behaviors that you need to do in order to be well. They use housing as kind of incentive for that. Well, they flipped the script and they said, you know what? Housing is going to be the baseline. It's going to be an act of grace. We're going to make sure that every veteran has a place to live, a sustainable housing environment. And sure enough, as they chipped away at it over the course of a couple of years, they got to the point where every veteran had a safe place to stay. And what they noticed from that was that the other behaviors about addiction and financial security and food security and all those things started to unlock from the base of having a home. Aren't you glad that God has a housing first priority with you? That God pursues you relentlessly to say, I have a place for you? Jesus said, I have a place for you and I will come back and I will take you to be with me so that where I am, you will be also. As God pursued Jacob, Jesus pursues each and every one of us and says, I have a place for you. And there are no preconditions on that housing arrangement in eternity other than just trusting that promise. And so you don't have to get your act together in order 
to be in a relationship with God. Because God will meet you right now where you are. And he will make good on his promise. I remember Pastor Vic one time telling the story about he had this old jacket that he had bought at Nordstrom's that he bought and was excited about and didn't really like. It gathered lint like it was going out of style and it didn't fit just quite right. And he put it in his, in his closet and he forgot about it for a long time. And then one day he saw the jacket and he said, you know what, I'm going to test that Nordstrom promise of return policy. And he took that jacket in and he was honest with the sales representative of course, this was back in the day when you could actually walk into a store and it was open. And he said, here's the jacket. I don't really like it. I'd like another one. And the sales representative said, what took you so long? I firmly believe that when you come back to God, God is going to say to you, what took you so long? He is faithful in all of his promises. He is trustworthy in all that he says. And so what Jacob discovers is that the promise is for him. And that old, old promise that his parents and his grandparents would tell is actually true. And I wonder if you've heard the stories and you've heard the promises throughout the years and you've never really thought that they were for you. And that there might be this encounter where God says, I'm not going to leave you until I've done what I have promised you. And so there's an old promise. But there's also a new perspective, a vision. Let me give you a little picture of what that vision might have been like for Jacob. This is in the country of Ur, biblically speaking. This is what a ziggurat or what a staircase to heaven would have been like. Long before there was a Led Zeppelin song, there were these ancient and incredible buildings. And the angels of God were ascending, descending. But what was amazing for Jacob is that he was in the middle of nowhere. He was in a place where they wouldn't even put a truck stop. It was in such the middle of nowhere. And so Jacob takes this vision, and it recasts his whole life. When he wakes up from that vision of being connected to God, even without all of the architecture, he says, surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. I didn't know it. God took an ordinary, out-of-the-way place and he made it into a holy place. We used to live back in Summit, New Jersey, and in this bedroom community of Manhattan, uh, there was a tradition of the church that I inherited, and that was on Martin Luther King Day weekend, we would have a clergy and choir swap with one of the other local congregations, a historically back, black Baptist congregation and our Presbyterian congregation would do that swap every single year. After we did the swap one year, I went to the pastor's office of the other church and I said, can I, relatively new here, can I ask a dumb question? And he's like, what's that? And I said, to me, this thing is good, but it's not great. And he's like, tell me more. And I said, wouldn't it be even better if we could worship together as one congregation on Martin Luther King Day weekend? And he's like, well, we can't do that because because, you know, the, the buildings aren't big enough. They couldn't house both congregations. And I said, yeah, I've actually checked. And the Summit High School Auditorium is big enough for both of our congregations to be together. Do you think that we could do it then? 
And he said, well, what would we do with the offering? And I said, well, why don't you keep it? And he said, you're a terrible negotiator and you have a deal. And so we started this incredible tradition of meeting in the place where they do all of these school plays and school assemblies and graduation ceremonies and all of these different things. And we met as one congregation. And I remember looking over at that pastor as he had tears streaming down his face. And he said, I'd never thought I'd live to see the day where black and white on Martin Luther King Day weekend where our churches would worship as one. Those tears did not surprise me, but they did surprise me, all of the tears that I saw on the faces of all the high school students. And when I pulled alongside them and I said, why are you guys so moved? And they said, we gather in this room all the time and we hear boring announcements and we see sometimes really bad plays. And all of a sudden, this school auditorium, it became a sanctuary. Borrowing the words of Jacob, they might say, surely the Lord was in this place. And I wasn't aware of it. I didn't know it. If God can do that with a school auditorium, what can he do with your home, your life, right now? Would the Spirit of God give you a vision that your place could be a holy place? For you see, Jacob renames the place Bethel long before there was a Bethlehem, a house of bread, or long before there was a Bethesda, a house of steadfast love, long before there was a Bethsaida, a house for the fishermen and for the hunter. There was a Bethel, a house of God. God can turn an ordinary place into a sacred place. If only you have the vision to be able to see it. That there's a connection between heaven and earth. And so the way to discover your true home is to cling to the old promise. It is to realize that there is a new perspective. But finally, there is a renewed practice. What's interesting is that the practice that Jacob engages in is one of the most ancient forms of marking territory and sacredness that we know. It's the stacking of stones. You might know this most recently from the famous Moana movie. But this is a practice that has been going on for a long, long time. And it would not only mark boundaries and it would not only mark special places, it would also be the kind of thing that you would consecrate. Jacob pours oil over it and he worships. He turns it into an altar. This is what God does. As he causes us to realize that he's there, that every place can be holy, and that all of life is an act of worship. I want to tell you the true story of a young woman by the name of Immaculee Ilibagiza. This is her memoir, her book. It's called Left to Tell, Discovering God Amidst the Rwandan Holocaust. Immaculee was 22 years old when she was in college and she went home for an Easter break. And when she headed back home, 
It was right after the president of Rwanda had been killed, which sparked a terrible genocide. Nearly a million people were killed, and all of a sudden, her family was killed and slaughtered. She was a part of the Tutsi family, and the Hutus were hunting them down. She, as well as seven other women, found shelter in the home of a pastor by hiding in a tiny bathroom. Here is a picture of what she looked like when they were found. And here is another picture of what she thought when she went back to visit it for the first time. She hid in that bathroom for 91 days. Scarcely any food, barely enough to drink. They began to wither away. She could hear them searching the house at times and miraculously they were not found. She heard them outside the home in the neighborhood calling her name because they were looking for her. She was haunted by their pursuit. And yet in spite of all of that, she wrote this. I found a place in the bathroom to call my own, a small corner of my heart. I retreated there as soon as I awoke and stayed there until I slept. It was my sacred garden where I spoke with God, meditated on his words, and nurtured my spiritual self. When I meditated, I touched the source of my faith and strengthened the core of my soul. While horror swirled around me, I found refuge in a world that became more welcoming and wonderful with each visit. Even as my body shriveled, my soul was nourished through my deepening relationship with God. That place was like a little slice of heaven where my heart spoke to his Holy Spirit and his spirit spoke to my heart and he assured me that while I lived in his spirit, I'd never be abandoned, never be alone, never be harmed. I sat stone still on that dirty floor for hours on end, contemplating the purity of his energy while the force of his love flowed through me like a sacred river, cleansing my soul and easing my mind. This is what Immaculate looks like today. She's a remarkable young woman who tells of her story of not just survival, but of thriving in the midst of one of the century's most devastating tragedies. As hard as it may be for you and I to be home, If God can perhaps do that in a bathroom in the middle of a genocide, what kind of connection can God make to you through worship? You likely have gone to worship over and over and over again, and maybe you've associated worship with a place, an address, a building, What if in this moment when you can't come to the sanctuary to worship, God were to bring that sanctuary to your heart, to your home, to your life? What if one of the silver linings of this sheltering in place was that you would find that your true shelter is in God?
and this through an old promise and a new perspective and the renewed practice of the, the art and the ancient wonder that is worship. The antidote to loneliness is not just getting back together. The antidote to isolation is worship. Because if you worship God, you'll never be alone. And so I firmly believe that life is not a game. I believe that there's more to this life than just being included or excluded from a particular activity. It's attributed to Albert Einstein, but it's often said that there are only two ways to live your life. One is though nothing is a miracle. The other, as though everything is a miracle. This is the way that God invites you to live your life. That everything, every moment, every part of your home, every part of your day, every part of your family, every part of your life is a miracle. But you'll only know that through the promise and through the perspective and through the practice of worship. God makes a promise to you in the same way that he made a promise to Jacob. And I wonder if you would be willing to join into that ancient covenant, that vow, by saying, so will I. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask for you to have in the presence of that same spirit that reached Immaculate in that horrible situation, that that very power, that very spirit would reach into homes in Atlanta and around the world through the sound of my voice. That people would believe the old promise and know that it's not gone bad, that it is still relevant and true and personal for me. I pray for the person who needs to wake up to the reality that you are in their midst, that you are in that place and they can't see it. Give them a vision, God, a vision of being connected to you. And for the person who just unsuspectingly signed on to online worship thinking might learn a little bit or Lord, may that person right now be ushered into your everlasting presence and that we would join you we would join you in our hearts falling before you in the great and amazing gift of praise and we pray all these things in Jesus name Amen